I hope everyone had a Merry Christmas. It's been a pretty rough couple of weeks for my wife and myself um, with the loss of Pinky. Um, I haven't been sleeping well. Uh, I'm not used to sleeping without that damn dog all curled up next to me. I, uh, every once in a while, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking I feel him nudging at me to let him under the blanket. Um, only to realize that it's all in my head and he's not actually there. Um, my wife still is sitting out by his grave crying for him just about every night. And uh, it's just, it has been a difficult time to for both of us to, to deal with this. But I owe you guys an episode. So I am driving through Oklahoma at the moment, heading towards Dallas, and uh, figured... It's dark out. There's nothing I want to listen to. There's no podcast out I want to listen to. Add this to the list of podcasts that I do not want to listen to. And hopefully you do. So, that being said, I ran across a couple of, well, I ran across a news story the other day in, um, I think it was in the Daily Mail talking about Trump attacking the governor of California over the results from the latest HUD report that shows that California's homeless population has increased to over 140,000 people. And, um, it struck me as odd, not odd, but it struck me that people aren't talking about this or aren't framing this in, in the way that I see appropriate for it to be framed. When you, when, when the Cal exit was hot on the tongues of all the haters of Donald Trump, not to say I'm a lover of him, but <clears throat> the frantic um, Democratic Party that were about to, that swore that we were about to enter into the Fourth Reich or whatever. they were bragging, constantly bragging. California has the, if California were its own country, it'd be the sixth largest economy in, in the world. And, okay, fine. If you want to measure GDP or um, you want to do average wealth, which, I mean, who's actually polled 
to uh, in 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 these surveys to distinguish what the average wealth of a nation or a country is or a, a state. I'm sorry. I haven't even finished my coffee. It's four o'clock in the morning. Um, yeah, you know, sure. GDP. Yeah. But, you know, judging the quality of life for the average person in a country or a state based upon that, you know, those coordinates, gross domestic product is like judging the quality of life of a churchgoer based upon how much money that church raises every week. It, it's, it doesn't mean anything. Well, the economy's strong and our nation looks good. Okay. Yeah. But what about me? Like, what, what, how, what does that do for me? Cause you continuously, you're continuously regulating small businesses out of business which I will talk about in a second, in order to prop up large corporations that happen to lobby and bribe the politicians and buy elections. Like, this is just the way it goes, right? This is corporatism. And when I saw the statistics in that among the lowest homeless rate in the United States was Mississippi with a total of 1,352 people but it's even but they're doing it per capita they're they're judging it based upon per 10,000 people of the state so Mississippi is in much better shape as a whole because each individual is in much better shape, yet the sixth largest economy in the world has a homeless population of over 140,000 people. So what's, what's, what's the deal? Mississippi is the poorest state in the United States with a median household income of $42,000 a year. How, how is this even possible? How is it even possible that the poorest state in the United States has one of, if not the lowest homeless populations per capita, yet one of the richest states in the United States has the highest homeless population per capita. This doesn't make sense. It has to do with income inequality, right? And that, and that what we're led to believe, it's all income inequality. Well, yes and no. See, Republicans miss this 
and conservatives miss this. Even some libertarians miss this. There is actually income inequality. But it is the result of the government policy, the Federal Reserve, and the central planning of the large government um, states and, and, and federalization and, and increased federal powers involving itself in the economy. It is not the result of a laissez-faire capitalist market system. It is the result of a highly centralized system. And so the progressives and the socialists will tell you, well, this is evidence that we need to spread the wealth around. And I'm telling them, sure, let's spread the wealth around, but let's do it in a way that actually works, right? You can look, the, the part of the reason that the United States was built as a federalist system was so that you had multiple places to, to like almost like Petri dishes to experiment and where things would work. They could be adopted by other states and where they didn't work, they could be abandoned and, and thrown away. But as the federal government has grown, grown and its power has reached into all these different aspects of our lives, you don't have as much opportunity to experiment because the federal government will strong arm you or your state or your community into it abiding by these rules and regulations and laws that they've put into place. And so what it does is it gets rid of the competition among the states in, in a large manner. And therefore, you don't see what is working and what is not working. And should it be working for the state? Should the state be enriched? Should the GDP be the ultimate goal? Or should it be working for every individual? And in Mississippi, the most impoverished state in the United States, it seems to be that even poverty works better for the individual than the systems put in place in California to combat poverty. I'm not advocating, obviously, that people are poor. That is not the ultimate goal here. What the ultimate goal here is saying, wait, you want to talk about redistribution. 
but what if it's but if the initial distribution is failed and flawed then why don't we look at what is causing it to be distributed in this way in the first place and when you trace this back you find the federal reserve you find corporate welfare you find the United States shipping, exporting billions of dollars in aid to other countries around the world, which goes into the pockets of the wealthy and the politicians and the politically collect, connected of these countries, inflates the U.S. dollar devalues and debases the U.S. dollar and therefore hurts those with less. <clears throat> so in California, you have a situation to where they've tried all these zoning laws in all these major cities They've, they've tried rent control. They've instituted all these feed the homeless programs on the state level. They've instituted all these laws, these square footage laws for humanitarian purposes, quote unquote, which is really just the wealthy saying we don't want our 50,000 square foot home next to a 500 square foot home. And they've displaced over 140,000 people due to government policy. Whereas in Mississippi, they pretty much leave their population alone, let them do their thing, Sure, they tax them. There's this, that, and the other. But they don't bother with all this zoning and rent control and all this nonsense. And they have a much lower homeless population. So what is the cause of the inequality? Well, you know, Murray Rothbard explains it really well. In uh, what has government done to our money? And he explains it like this. If you have a counterfeiter, someone who's counterfeiting money and adding that money into the economy, when that money is initially printed, it has the exact same value as the money that's already out there in the market. And as that money, and so when that money is initially introduced, therefore the first person to hold those funds, they are spending that money at 100% of its value upon its printing. But as that money works its way through the market and the market begins to adjust to the inflation of the currency, 
the supply increases, the demand decreases, and therefore the value of that money is deflated. So by the time that money works its way through the market and ends up into the hands of of a store clerk in the in the form of a paycheck, that money is worth less than it initially was. And therefore, it's basically a tax upon that store clerk, which is why counterfeiting is illegal. Yet the federal government, through quantitative easing programs, prints as much money as they would like, devalues the currency by inflating the supply And the first people to touch the money, the politicians, the political class, the business class, the banking, the bankers are spending that money at 100% of its value. But by the time it gets down to Joe Blow, the average working man, it's lost some of its value. And so that it enters his hands, not only being taxed from his income in which he receives the money, but his money is also being taxed by the devaluing of the money because now he can purchase less with the same amount of money. We see this when we look at the gold standard and I've, I know everybody uses this example, but it's such an easy example. In 1920, you could take an ounce of gold worth $20 an ounce, have a custom suit made, and buy a nice pair of shoes with that ounce of gold. In 2019, you can take an ounce of gold valued at $1,350 an ounce or whatever it is today, $1,500 an ounce, whatever it is today, And you can purchase a a custom-tailored suit and a nice pair of shoes with it. It's, It's worth the same amount as far as product goes. And that's not even the case in every product. If you look at, let's just say, an iPhone, you look at the the iPhone, I don't know, I guess the iPhone 10 was the last one. Maybe they're up to 11 or 50 or whatever. But when it first came out, I remember seeing stories that it was like $1,600 or something like that in some places because there was such a demand for it. But as it's become the supplies increased of the iPhone, it's not only become more prominent and easier to find, but it's also become less expensive. It's down, probably down to eight, $900 now. I don't know. I don't use iPhone. I use Android. And my phone is, I, I'm using the S6. So I have too many fucking books and shit downloaded on my phone to switch over to another phone. So that's, that's how much I care about all that. My phone seems to work, and that's all I really give a shit about. But, but so 
as that supply is increased, increased, then, you know, the value, the demand decreases. And that, that only makes sense. You know, why would you pay $1,600 for an iPhone that you can go shop around the marketplace for and find several thousand of them for sale and get, you know, and shop the best deal when, whenever there's so many options. You would only spend that money if there were very few options and you just had to have it. You really wanted to have it, not to get into the psychology of the type of person that buys Apple products, which I understand to an extent. I, I get the, the, at least the psychology behind it, but you know, so you get, you get this went the initial printing of the money in the hands of of the bankers, of the politicians, of the business class is valued at 100%. It works its way down to the working class and it is lost 2% of its value by the time it gets down there. Then, yes, you are going to have an income inequality problem. That's what that is. That is what's causing it. It is the system. The way that it is devised is creating the income inequality. So to just dismiss the idea that there is income inequality doesn't, do, doesn't solve the actual issues at hand. Whereas you might say, well, it's just, it's such and such created the products and they created, yeah, but they're not doing it on their own, right? The railroads did not lay all that track on their own. They did not procure the land on their own. This was all a device of the federal government strong-arming individual homesteaders and landowners and farmers into turning over the land to the railroad co companies, right? So, so the idea that the income inequality is created by capitalism, and this is why I've, told, I've said before, I'm not sure if capitalism is the right word. I like market, um, market anarchy or market anarchists versus anarcho-capitalist. And the reason is, is because I truly believe in the market and the free market and how to operate within the free market. And the market and the free market would not exclude what many people consider the ideas of socialism. What happens with the socialist system, and this is where, where I split with my socialist friends because they look at government as a utility right and so they're like well we're not going to be able to do this 
are we're not going to be able to create the communal system, the communist system, without the oppression of the federal government, without the federal government involving itself. So what we should do is we should take the idea of centrally planned of, of a centrally planned economy and turn it into our idea of what a socialist centrally planned economy would look like. And so that does not get rid of the central planning, which is the ultimate issue. See, the issue isn't within a community of 3,000 people. Every person determines amongst themselves, this is how we should organize our community, our little society here. And it should be based upon, you know, the well-being of each and every individual within the society. And this idea worked well when you had really large, tight-knit, close families that were all interested in the well-being of each other, knew each other, had relationships with each other, right? But to implement this on a scale of 330 million people into which I don't know anybody, period, that lives in, let's say, Oregon. I don't know anybody that lives in Oregon personally. I know of people that live there, but I don't know anybody personally that lives up there. And so, therefore, I have no incentive to assist these people and to want to assist these people, right? If I want to blindly assist the, the impoverished or blindly assist those that fall upon hard times, I can find a local charity to go and donate food to or give money to or whatever. So when you're implementing a system trying to create the society of 330 million people to act as a cohesive unit, you are starting, you are having to centrally plan it. And then each and every community within this society has different desires, different wants, different needs. To think that small town Texas has the same needs and desires as New York City is ignorant. And to think that you're going to implement on a federal level this large centrally planned socialist economy that affects those in small town Texas to pay for the the needs and desires of those in New York City is to start truly start a conflict 
within the country that could easily turn into a civil war. The fact of the matter is, if you leave small town Texas to small town Texas in New York City to New York City, then there's much less of an issue. And we can watch how small town Texas has a low homeless population per capita, um, more of a community feel, less police activity. Whereas in a large city like New York City, you have more police activity, you have more police violence, you have, you have much less respect for human life. You have a much higher homeless population. Well, why is it? Well, obviously, New York City is more centrally planned than small town Texas, right? And so that, on top of the amount of people within the society, compared to the amount of income there is causes an issue. And it's an issue that was intended to expand the role of government in people's lives. You know, the, it was at Jefferson that said the tendency of liberty is to shrink and the tendency of government is to grow. And it's because as government grows, liberty shrinks. You have less freedom in a large government than you do under a small government. You might have more comforts at your disposal, but you have less freedom. And see, this is, I hear Nick Gillespie talk about this all the time. Well, are you less free today with the internet and this, that, and the other than you were, blah, 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 blah? Well, yeah, you are. You are less free. Because just because I have more comfort, I have more things to distract me from my everyday life, doesn't make me more free. Might make me less aware, but it doesn't make me more free. So... The idea that comfort and, and resources is what creates freedom is ridiculous. The lack of intervention in my life is what creates freedom. And what I choose to do with that is up to me. But the progressives would say, yeah, we do have the biggest government in the world, but we just need a little bit more government to fix this. Well, but you're, you're solving a problem created by a government solution with another government solution that's going to create a new problem. And how many times, how many times do you want to, to give government more power to watch them fail implementing 
your ideal system. Why not combat federal power with state and local power and shun the federal society from your state and local environments? And this is where me as a voluntarist, as an anarchist, have a disagreement with the anarcho-syndicalist or the anarcho-communists because they're like, well, they're talking about doing a, a large SNP program, let's just say for like healthcare, for instance. And I'm like, look, I don't have a problem with, with you wanting like your intent to ensure that people have health care, right? What I have a problem with is trying to force me into a system that has not worked to date. It just doesn't work. You're, you're trying to force me to spew up more of my daily earnings into a corrupt government that murders women and children for fun and expect them to respect health care. Look what they've done to Social Security. Look what they've done to the DMV. Jesus Christ. You want to talk about a place? I, I do not want that type of person fucking running my fucking health care system. You know? Like, look at the TSA. Which one of, what government program works so well that you believe these are the people that should be in charge of healthcare? Why not do it on the blockchain? Why not find a bunch of people to work together? They don't have to live in the same area or the same community. Just have to have the same interests come together and create a blockchain style of insurance that they can then register less fortunate people up into this system. I would probably donate into something like that voluntarily, not coerced. I would choose to do that because, but I would have to see that it would work. That it would help. But they don't, but they want everyone to be forced into it. So they've turned their anarcho system into a statist system. They, they're seeing the utility of the state and they are being you know, seduced by the opportunity to force their system onto the public with good intentions in many instances. Not all of them are tankies, you know. But you have to start step back and say, wait, what has 
the mass government intervention into lives done to people? What has the mass government intervention into the economy actually accomplished? And when you start looking at, well, California has the sixth highest GDP in the world, if it were its own country, yet Mississippi is the most impoverished state in the United States. Yet one of them has a soaring homeless population, while the other one has this sense of community. It's almost as if you keep the government out of people's lives, they will not only find solutions to the problems of their communities, but they'll actually form communities voluntarily and help each other. Now, what was it I said I was going to say something on? I know there was something that I was thinking I must say something about. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I forgot what it was. I know I mentioned something a while ago. I mentioned something a while ago. What did I mention, guys? I need y'all to help me out. I have no one here to remind me, and I have no notes. I am just driving. <coughs> um, well, let's touch on immigration for a second. Just for a second. I don't talk about immigration a whole, whole lot. But, okay, so... I don't like the, the idea that the argument is twofold, that it's a binary argument, that it's open borders or closed borders is ridiculous to me. And I'm not going to take this from a centrist argument. No, we have to have common sense immigration. No, no, I'm not a centrist at all. I'm not. I'm not a centrist at all. I'm a radical. I look at how to employ power to the individual from a radical perspective. That's what I want. I want each and every person to have the ultimate autonomy over their own lives, ultimate authority over their own lives, the option to opt out, the option to nullify, and the option to live their life as they choose. That's what I want. I am a radical. So, but in this case, if you take the open borders argument or the closed borders argument, you're saying the exact same thing when you're taking it from a mainstream point of view. What the libertarian minded, the anarchist, the voluntarist have to learn to do is to stop having the conversation on the terms of the political class. No matter what conversation we are involving ourselves in, we must learn to distinguish our narrative in such a way that is articulated and it separates us from the binary 
that the political class wishes to box everyone into, right? And I've talked about this a little bit. I think I had one episode where I talked about land monopoly and and how we should be framing this as a land monopoly. And the more I look at the arguments for open and closed borders, it is both of them are are an extension of a land monopoly. See, the open borders crowd wants you to believe that they should have the control over the border and to open it to whomever wants to enter onto the properties within the United States. The closed borders crowd wants you to believe that they should have the authority to shut off entry onto properties into the United States. Yet the libertarian-minded, anarchist, voluntarist view is I should be able to have whoever I want on my property whenever I want, no matter where they were born. I shouldn't be restricted or forced one way or the other. Because imagine you own a ranch on the border. You've lived on this ranch for, your family's been on this this ranch for generations. And initially, you welcome migrants into the nation. You leave them water out. You leave them food. You might let them, because you have, you know, a couple hundred acres, you might let them set up tents and camp. But then you find that they are trashing your property. And that your property has become a wasteland, a garbage dump, due to the population that you've had come through. And you don't and you get tired of going around picking up the garbage. You decide to fence it off. Well, the open borders crowd would have you believe that you can't do that. That the border belongs to the state. That you can fence off your home or portions of your property, but anything directly on the border is not actually your property. That it is that it is belonging to the state. Now, let's take it from the other point of view. You notice that they're trashing the place and you decide, well, this sucks. I don't like it, but I tell you what I could do. How about I charge $5 a night for them to camp? I'll set up some trash cans and some grills. I make me a little, little private you know, resort, little park, camping resort. 
I charge five bucks per night per family. Let's just say they can come, they can camp. I'm being reimbursed for the time I'm out there spending picking up trash. It with the trash cans located, you know, out on the ranch. Hopefully, more of them use the trash cans than don't. And then those that don't, I can pick up after them. I'm making me a little bit of money for the inconvenience, and everything's fine. Well, the closed border crowd would say you're not allowed to do that. That you're not allowed to utilize your property in, in that kind of way because they control the border. And it's not your property control, it's the United States government's. Again, not a libertarian argument. The libertarian argument that they've had so much trouble expressing and getting into the mainstream point of view because everybody is so adherent to the state and wishes to appeal to authority is that if you want people on your property, it is your property. And if you do not want people on your property, it is your property. That's it. The state has nothing to do with it. They have no say in the matter. It is not up to them. They do not come in, enter the equation. Somebody that lives in Philadelphia does not enter the equation. It is not up to them who I have on my property at my house. If you live in, an, if you live in Alaska, it is not up to you who I have on my property or at my house. <clears throat> this is as simple as I can lay it out. The libertarian argument is it's none of your business. Pay attention to your property. I'll deal with my property. If I don't want people on my property, I'll close my borders. If you don't want people on your property, you close your borders. Otherwise, you have no say in the matter. None whatsoever. It is not up to you. This is not my property is not up for debate. My property is not up for vote. As it is, I pay the land taxes. I pay the mortgage. It is not your call. It is my call. Who I have on my property. Where they're from. And whether or not I care if they speak the language. It is not up to you. I can't remember what it was I had said I was going to talk about earlier. I'm sure my sound got jacked up by now. But I will listen back and we will do uh, another episode shortly. And I will make sure to mention what I was trying to think of to mention. So, until then, Happy New Year. I'm Tommy Salmons. Late.